Are you ready to take your leadership in your organization to the next level and beyond? Your competitors will be there before you know it. Today's leaders must perpetually innovate their leadership approach, evolve their organizations, and grow faster than the competition. Welcome to Innovating Leadership, co-creating our future with Maureen Metcalf. In the next hour, you'll meet innovative leaders who have become successful at the helm of some of the most respected organizations in the world, and you can become the next big success story. Now, here is your host, Maureen Metcalf. Hi, welcome to Innovating Leadership, co-creating our future. Today's conversation is about leadership, communication, and credibility in a high-stakes world. I'm your host, Maureen Metcalf. I'm the founder and the CEO of the Innovative Leadership Institute. We help leaders identify disruptive trends and develop strategies to transform themselves and their organizations into industry leaders. I'm a regular contributor to Forbes and the lead author on an award-winning book series, Innovating How You Lead and Transforming Your Organizations. I'm also a fellow with the International Leadership Association. I am delighted that our guest today on the show is Jack Modulesky. Jack is the author of Talk is Cheap, Leadership Communication and Credibility in a High Stakes World and the founder and president of Jackknife PR, a business communication consulting firm in Chicago. His extensive career in public relations, marketing, communication, and executive management include roles in several global agencies. And Jack's going to tell us a little bit more about his background as we start the interview. So Jack joins me today to share his leadership experiences and his new book, Talk is Chief. With compelling stories and strategies, this book inspires leaders and aspiring leaders to treat their daily communication practices as seriously as their fiscal, operational, value creation, deal making, and business transformation, and other executive responsibilities. So Jack, I am delighted that you are able to join us Let's start with a little bit more of your background and then jump into the conversation about your book. Well, thank you, Maureen. I really appreciate uh, this opportunity to have this conversation with you today. Uh, My journey during my career has been really all about communications, but different facets of it. So my first job was in advertising. I uh, went back to school to get a master's degree in journalism at the Medill School of Journalism at Northwestern, and I'm still on the board of advisors there. And uh, then I embarked on a very long career in public relations on the agency side, but really working very closely with all kinds of companies in different industries over a span of about 35 years, and I'm still doing that. And along the way, um, I've had uh, my my fingers in some other things like public affairs. I've been chairman of an organization in Illinois called the Better Government Association, where we try to shine a spotlight on both good and bad government practices. So it's been an interesting journey, and uh, some of it's been in my book. Some of it maybe we'll cover today. That would be fabulous. I don't want to get political, but it's an interesting time to watch how government's operating. Absolutely. So let's jump into conversation about communication challenges to start with. Oh, one thing else I want to mention, I I talked about International Leadership Association, and you have, it looks like, extensive experience in global organizations. So for our listeners 
I just wanted to to point out that Jack will give uh, more global examples as well. This won't be entirely U.S. centric. So what were some of the biggest communication challenges you faced in your career and how do you advise your colleagues to handle them? Well, I'll start really with um, a midpoint in my career when I joined this firm, Fleischman Hillard, uh, a St. Louis-based firm. At the time, we were uh, pretty small and we didn't have much of an international presence and my job was to uh, start an office in Chicago, where I'm from, and where I was already working. And so I think one of my first communications challenges was to convince my colleagues in a new company that I was someone who would be working and performing up to their standards of success, that uh, I would operate in a way that was really consistent with their culture and their values. And that's often a challenge that any new leader faces, both uh, inside a company where they've ascended or uh, in these days you have leaders who really jump back and forth from different companies. Uh, you know, some have been CEOs at three different firms in the space of a decade. So that was a very interesting challenge for me. And then the next one I faced in the same company at Fleischman Hillard, and you already had mentioned international, was going abroad um, to work in Europe to head up our operations there, but really to do uh, transformative leadership because we were not in a place where we wanted to be in Europe. We were small. We were struggling. We were really not on the map with a lot of our international clients. So I was really sent over there to uh, build up our operation uh, through organic growth and acquisitions, and acquisitions wasn't something I wasn't really involved in up until that point, and suddenly I was in the deep end of the pool in terms of mergers and acquisitions. So um, that, w that was quite a challenge, and I don't really make too many allusions to it in my book, but um, I committed a fair number of cultural and communication faux pas when I first got to Europe. And if you're interested in hearing about any of them, I can tell you. But it was a challenge for me to go there and convince people uh, in Paris and Italy and Germany and Dublin and other places that an American could lead them to uh, a, higher, a higher standard of where we wanted to be. You know, I would love to hear a few, and the reason is so many of us are incredibly skilled at the things we're incredibly skilled at, have blind spots, and unless someone lets us know in advance, we can stumble, and in some cases, those stumbles are significantly damaging to our careers and, and to our organizations. Oh, absolutely. And it wasn't as though I had a great deal of preparation for this assignment. And the first decision I made was um, our, our headquarters was in Paris, great city to live in. But at the time, uh, it was probably our most um, deficient office in Europe. So, uh, And it had no relationship with our parent company, which had its European headquarters in London. So... Within a week's time, I made my first executive decision, which was to change the headquarters from the continent, from Paris to London, which was a little controversial, but uh, we overcame that. 
um, I found myself in Europe, uh, you know, constantly trying to listen to the people I was managing, both uh, the leaders of countries and the people working under them, to really understand how they approached our business, how they approached client service, what their values were uh, within our organization. And the expectation was, you know, we all have the same values. We all are part of the same culture. But in any big organization today, especially in 2020, you're going to have microcultures all over the world. Uh, you have to manage a little differently and communicate a little differently in Japan and China than you would in Germany and Turkey. And even in the United States, we have plenty of microcultures, and some of them are, you know, siloed within different divisions and business units and departments. So leaders have to transcend a lot of those uh, cultural and sometimes communications obstacles to effectively give people the roadmap and the vision of where you want to go. So what were some of your biggest surprises as you navigated this? What were differences that you didn't anticipate? Uh, occasionally, uh, even in the English language, I would say the wrong words. <laughs> I don't know if any of your listeners could identify with this, but I remember standing up in a meeting in London when I had been there for only about a month. And, you know, frequently Americans talk about acquiring talent and training more talent. And we, 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 we refer to people as talent. Well, in London, that had some of the wrong connotations. Um, in fact, uh, some people thought that meant you were going to uh, saloons and pubs looking for someone to date. That, that was the concept of talent. So occasionally I would commit faux pas like that that would get some titters around the room. But um, I found out that if I used you know, plain English most of the time, I could avoid some of those situations. But a lot of it was really understanding how people in a country – really uh, responded to leadership, responded to work. Um, they had some of their own rules and guidelines about how they did things, uh, how to best communicate with them, if, whether it was in small groups or larger groups or one-on-one -on -one meetings, uh, just to really get uh, personal communications effectively to them. So there were a lot of challenges like that. Um, as far as working with clients, I didn't find that to be the more difficult part of the challenge. The more difficult part was uh, managing our own people, and, and frequently, you know, that is the case with large international and global companies that um, clients often uh, speak English or speak a couple of different languages, so it's not that hard to communicate with them, but um, frequently it's your internal challenges that are the ones that you have to be most attentive to. So um, I'll, I'll shift gears in just a second, but is there kind of an example of something you did that you wished you hadn't that you would like our listeners to learn from? Uh, while I was managing in Europe or, or anywhere along the way? Uh, let's say anywhere along the way. Okay. And the funnier, the well, better, by the way. I, I, think, I think a common mistake that I made from time to time, and I had to keep reminding myself not to do it, was to pretend that I was really the smartest person in the room 
or just because I was the leader and, you know, I went on to be president of the Americas, which was our largest operation. It was about 70% of our business and it stretched from Canada to Brazil. And you have to understand um, and appreciate that you have a lot of smart people around you, some who are smarter than you. Maybe they haven't risen to your rank of leadership, but they put great expectations on you, and sometimes you fall into that trap that because I'm the CEO or because I'm the president, I have to always act like I'm smarter, I'm in control. And that's just a bad management practice because you get a lot farther in um, your performance goals when you're listening to the people around you, taking their ideas forward, being advocates for them, mentoring them, and trying to make them into better leaders. And I, I really believe that, you know, one of the great roles of leadership is to inspire and create other leaders around you. I absolutely agree. And I was reading something today about the balance of confidence and humility. And it's a tough balance to convince people that we know what we're doing without sounding arrogant. Right. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, sometimes you can make the mistake of seeming too humble when people are expecting you to lead them and to, you know, have complete confidence in you and know that you know your stuff and you're the expert. But, you know, you can't do it in an arrogant way. You have to, you know, look at your human side and say, you're no different than the people that you're managing. You're just in a higher place in the company with higher expectations on you. So our next question was, how do you make sure you're viewed as credible? And this seems to really tie into, as a leader, the balance of being inspirational by balance, by, yeah, attending to both humility, I'm not arrogant, but I'm here because I know what I'm doing. And I may make a mistake, but don't confuse a mistake with not top of my game. Yes, yes, that's it, very well said. When, when I think about credibility, and I certainly write about it um, quite a bit in the book, it really comes down to uh, words and actions and behaviors. Um, the words are always very important, and today the words of any person, especially leaders, follow them around almost like a carbon footprint. Uh, I think people have communications and credibility footprints these days because anything that you say, anything that you said 15 or 20 years ago, for that matter, is probably somewhere in the public record and, and researchable. And these days, you know, words travel far and fast, um, especially if someone misinterprets them. But, you know, that's another topic that we may get into a little bit later. So credibility really comes down to behavior. It's showing respect for all of your different stakeholders, but um, earning that respect, having them trust you. I think credibility really starts with trust, and especially when it's someone in a leadership position. Um, obviously, being accountable and delivering on what you said you're going to deliver, so it's one thing to say, you know, I'm going to do these five things or all of us together are going to do these five things in the next year. But if you don't deliver on them, you lose some of your accountability when you're responsible ultimately for those goals. So I think those are some of the key components 
of credibility. Um, leaders are often, you know, the messenger, um, and the words might be their own or the words might be those of the organization. But if the messenger isn't believed, then the message isn't going to believe. I think that's a great note to go on break with. If the messenger isn't believed, the message isn't believed. And I would encourage our listeners as we go on break to think about a time where you were interacting with someone who may have had a really important message, but for some reason they weren't fully credible. And then ask yourself, am I making that mistake? Is this something I should attend to in myself? Jack and I will be right back, and we are talking about his book, Talk is Chief. Thank you for joining us. Find out what's happening on the Voice America Talk Radio Network by keeping up with us on Twitter. You can find us at Voice America TRN. The Innovative Leadership Institute is your trusted partner to create perpetual innovation and evolution in your leadership and organization. Are you ready to innovate and evolve? Since its inception, the Innovative Leadership Institute has been dedicated to helping leaders evolve their leadership mindset and skills and create organizations that can continually innovate to achieve results in a highly competitive and rapidly changing environment. We help leaders, management teams, and organizations identify and create the capacity to update how they lead, identify, and implement transformative solutions necessary to meet their mission and create strategic advantage. The Innovative Leadership Institute offers proven results backed by leading-edge research and a global network of accomplished consultants and thought leaders. Visit InnovativeLeadershipInstitute.com. Maureen and her associates are ready to discuss your needs and tailor a solution to meet your goals. Move forward with the Innovative Leadership Institute. Visit InnovativeLeadershipInstitute.com today. Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device, including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. Now you don't have to stay linked to your desktop or laptop. Take Voice America on the go and listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. Thank you again for joining us this week. Please tune in for another edition of Innovating Leadership, Co-Creating Our Future with Maureen Metcalf, next Tuesday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time, on the Voice America Business Channel. We hope you'll join us then, and have a great week. Hi, welcome back to Innovating Leadership, Co-Creating Our Future. We are talking about leadership, communication, and credibility in a high-stakes world. So we went on break right after Jack talked a little bit about credibility. Let's now come back and talk about, Jack, if you could... Share a little bit more about what happens when we, um, as leaders, make a mistake, which we all do. And for those who are working in disruptive environments and 
doing things that are new. In many cases, things they have not done, but also things that have not been done. We're going to make mistakes. How do we maintain credibility in an environment where everything we say and do is under more scrutiny and that when we're doing things outside of the norm to grow our businesses, we are likely to do things that are, are directionally correct, but not perfect. Absolutely. And uh, I think there are mistakes that leaders sometimes make that impact their credibility, things they say, things they might do, things they might not do, that they can recover from. Um, there are mistakes that they can't recover from. Well, let me start with the ones that I think are the easier to deal with, and that is, um, you know, when something that they've projected or something that they've said is going to happen doesn't happen on time. And in the entrepreneurial world and the technology world, that does happen a lot where the CEO or the entrepreneur might say, well, this will be ready to go to market or we're going to have FDA approval of our new drug or we will be um, making this product or service available on a certain date and that doesn't happen. Well, then you have to tell people why it didn't happen and what you're doing about it and when it will happen. And I think if they still trust you and they trust the organization, then uh, you can recover from that so long as it doesn't become a repeat offense. Um, a big issue, I think, with credibility is making sure that your credibility inside the organization is um, is behind you and um, and people believe and trust you because if they don't internally, then it's going to raise real issues externally because sometimes leaders go out and they do say something and people around them in the company will say, well, we know that's not true or we know that's not going to happen and why is he or she saying that? And, and that can be a real problem because uh, then you're causing disruption and uh, an angst within the organization itself, and that's a harder thing to deal with. Uh, of course, you know, one of the issues that is uh, almost suicidal for leaders is if they lie or if they project a lot of self-serving type of behavior where they're not really thinking or acting on behalf of their many stakeholders, their employees, their customers, their um uh, their investors, and so forth. So I think um, that is one where, you know, if you get caught in a big lie, um, it often is a reason to exit the company. A uh, board of directors might show you the way and say, you know, you can't work here anymore. But that's usually a fatal mistake. Interesting. Do you have an example where you've seen that happen and and I'm thinking of specifically the self-serving and all the research and, and I have examples personally and in my consulting world where leaders thought they were smarter than others would say something they thought wouldn't be noticed and people discovered that they were being disingenuous and then there were others who say something that they think is true in the moment, and it just turns out not to be, not because they were malicious, but because at that point in time, what they said 
appeared to be true through the information they had and over time turned out to be false. Right. Yeah, and I don't think you can uh, fire leaders for occasionally creating ambiguity or um, what some people have called unforced errors, where maybe because of competitive pressure that they're under, competitors doing things faster, better than them, that um, they make statements or they make pronouncements that are a little shy of the facts and a little shy of credibility. Um, I think it's when they perpetrate something much bigger, where and I won't give you a specific company name, but I have worked with a few companies where someone in a leadership position, in one case it was the CEO, and in another case it was a person leading a major division, just simply was not telling the truth about a problem. Um, it's one thing not to recognize a major problem that turns into a crisis because you need more facts or you need more substantiation. Uh, it's another thing to know the facts, to know that, you know, you are responsible for something, not just you personally, but your organization, and not to do anything about it or to perpetrate some sort of cover-up. And, you know, the, my uh, in the book I talk about my Ten Commandments of Crisis Management, and I think one of the commandments is, you know, don't make a crisis worse by doing a cover-up and, and lying to people. So I think those are examples of when um, credibility for everyone, not just the leader, goes right out the door, and then it takes a long time for the organization under new leadership to try to reestablish its its corporate credibility, its organizational credibility. You know, I think of a few things in the news recently, and these are things I have no personal knowledge of, but um, the Volkswagen claims about environmental, um, how, how they were dealing with environmental regulations as one. And where do customers and the board uh, help a CEO or the senior leadership team exit? And where do stockholders exit? And it really does seem that once we discover something's not as we thought, how we deal with it's obviously very important. That, yes, that idea yes. of not lying but not oversharing until we have all of the data, as an example. Exactly. But, you know, not to take too long a time of do it, doing it. So, you know, you take the case of two different automotive companies, and here I'll be a little more specific, um, how uh, Volkswagen handled its problem and how um, General Motors in 2014 under a new CEO, Mary Barra, handled theirs. Now, in the case of General Motors, Mary Barra walked right into the, the limelight, um, the first woman to be uh, the CEO of a major automotive company anywhere in the world. And um, she was kind of uh, basking in the glow of all this limelight for a few weeks, and then suddenly this enormous issue and crisis lands on her desk. And she, uh, as a veteran of General Motors, who really understood the organization, said, you know, number one, we're going to get to the truth as fast as we can. We're going to investigate this because it goes back many, many years. 
uh, we're going to be totally accountable to our customers and everyone else for what we might have done in terms of reparation and so forth. Um, she uh, fired a number of people, a lot of key people. But the key thing that she did at that time was she said, we got to change the culture here. And this was a culture that she was a part of and in, in many ways thrived on for a long time, but probably knew that there were some cracks and fragments in it. And she said, I'm going to use this as an opportunity to transform our culture into what we should be so that something like this never happens again at General Motors. So um, there, there are ways of handling something that might have been a systemic issue that a leader tended to not give enough attention to, overlooked, or in some cases just said, you know, oh, this will pass. We don't have to be totally truthful about it. Well, and our world is changing with regard to transparency and what we expect as well. Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, there might have been a time way, way in the past where um, with good legal help and uh, the fact that, you know, <laughs> journalism and everything moved at such a slower pace that people could get away with something for a long time. But I think we all know, uh, all of us in business and professionals as, and, and as human beings, that the truth eventually emerges. Um, it may take longer in some cases, but so if if anyone or if any organization decides, you know, we can defy the odds and people will never find out the real truth, they're wrong, and it will happen. So I've always encouraged my clients, you know, if you're in a bad situation, try to get to the truth as fast as you can before others do. Beautiful. So you write about preventing the preventable. And again, we've kind of touched on that. Sometimes we don't know it, so we're not able to prevent it. But what should leaders be doing to get ahead of an issue before it becomes a crisis? Well, back to the cultural point, uh, the first thing is they should have a culture where people are not afraid uh, to come forward and say, you know, we have a little problem that could turn into a very big problem if we don't deal with it. And sometimes the people who know about those little problems are working in laboratories or on assembly lines or they're engineers or there's someone in the HR department who has seen a trend of could be sexual abuse or something in the organization or bad customer practices. So uh, the first thing a leader can do is try to foster the type of open culture where people aren't afraid to tell their boss and, you know, work up the chain to the C-suite and the board of directors that something that is a small risk today is growing in intensity and could become a very big risk. And honestly, I think that half of the things that we see in the news media that have become crises, at least half, could have been avoided if companies, A, had those types of cultures where it didn't depend on whistleblowers and that sort of thing, um, and then they acted pretty rapidly once they knew something could become a big risk. And so I think it's a matter of having the culture, having systems in place for monitoring external threats as well as things that can go wrong inside. Um, and then, you know, assigning people the responsibility 
to not ignore these things, to pay attention to them. I mean, the natural, the natural, um, the, the natural tendency in, in a company for executives and management people is to always look for positive things, always look for sales and marketing and, you know, driving customer performance and all that, but not to spend much time on risks that can make all of that stop and totally disrupt the company. Well, you do have to spend more time on it. And a good example is I was recently having a conversation with a CEO of a financial services company, a very big company, and he had read my book and he said, you know, the most important chapter to me was the one on risk management. And I've shared that with uh, a lot of the people in my leadership team. You know, I think it's a brilliant point that especially, again, in a disruptive environment where the risks are things we hadn't imagined and they are accelerating like everything else. So things like ransomware that certainly wasn't on my radar a year ago. And then I had a client that was ransomed not too long ago. The just the, the as quickly as we think about innovating our offerings, people on the other side that are are looking to do things inappropriately to take advantage of our businesses, they are equally as um, energetic and innovative. Right. Absolutely. And, you know, back to the leader, no one expects, I don't expect a leader to be vigilant about anything that can possibly happen to their organization. They just have too much to worry about do every day. But there are other people who have those responsibilities, um, the legal team, the corporate communications and public affairs team, the human resources people, the people on the front lines dealing with customers. So long as those people are always thinking defensively as well as, you know, uh, playing offense for the organization, then there's a good chance uh, if people don't have fears about taking a potential problem upstairs, then um, I think those things surface and the organization has a chance maybe to get out in front of them and deal with them and say, you know, if this could happen to one of our competitors, it can certainly happen to us. I think that's a great point. And as we go on break, the very practical recommendation that I heard you say is in an environment where keeping secrets just doesn't work, that getting ahead of challenges, gathering the information, and most importantly, creating a culture like Mary Barra did, that we elevate when when things go wrong, and they always do in in a complicated life that we have systems and processes in place to elevate them and a culture that supports attending to risk without um, abusing people who, who raise those challenges because, in fact, they're the ones who keep us in business and help us preserve our reputation. Absolutely. Well said. Thank you. Well, I'm parroting back what you have said, so we're going to go on break. <laughs> I... Um, For our listeners, as you are uh, listening to our sponsors, I encourage you to think about the culture in which you are working or leading. And is there enough of a, do you have enough of a culture of elevating the risks as well as promoting the positives? Jack and I will be right back. 
out what's happening on the Voice America Talk Radio Network by keeping up with us on Twitter. You can find us at Voice America TRN. The Innovative Leadership Institute is your trusted partner to create perpetual innovation and evolution in your leadership and organization. Are you ready to innovate and evolve? Since its inception, the Innovative Leadership Institute has been dedicated to helping leaders evolve their leadership mindset and skills and create organizations that can continually innovate to achieve results in a highly competitive and rapidly changing environment. We help leaders, management teams, and organizations identify and create the capacity to update how they lead, identify, and implement transformative solutions necessary to meet their mission and create strategic advantage. The Innovative Leadership Institute offers proven results backed by leading-edge research and a global network of accomplished consultants and thought leaders. Visit InnovativeLeadershipInstitute.com. Maureen and her associates are ready to discuss your needs and tailor a solution to meet your goals. Move forward with the Innovative Leadership Institute. Visit InnovativeLeadershipInstitute.com today. Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device, including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa. Play Finding Your Frequency podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. Now you don't have to stay linked to your desktop or laptop. Take Voice America on the go and listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. Thank you again for joining us this week. Please tune in for another edition of Innovating Leadership, Co-Creating Our Future with Maureen Metcalf next Tuesday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. We hope you'll join us then and have a great week. Hi, welcome back to Innovating Leadership. Uh, Jack and I are talking about leadership, communication, and credibility in a high-stakes world. So let's jump right in. How should leaders deal with activists or those who want to disrupt your business from the outside, not the inside? Well, I want to bridge a couple of thoughts here because uh, one of the things that I did want to say about how leaders can prepare their companies or their organizations for um, dealing with risk, one thing that they can clearly do is to make sure that once they identify risk and whether those risks come internally from problems, um, whether it's anticipating natural disasters or natural occurrences or government investigations. Um, but sometimes, you know, those, those risks can come from people whose objective really is because they disagree with what you're doing, they don't like what you're doing, and they do want to disrupt you. So, you know, how do you get out in front of um, activities like that? Well, one of my rules of risk management is that, you shouldn't wait until a crisis to make friends. You shouldn't wait until a crisis to have um, all kinds of third-party potential allies. Um, and that means constantly having conversations with your your key stakeholders 
making sure that your own employees and colleagues can be very good ambassadors for the company, not just brand ambassadors, but relationship type of ambassadors, so that um, if you do have a big problem, you're not sitting there in isolation trying to think of, you know, who's going to come to your support. And I think some of the best companies do operate that way, do understand it, that, you know, it's not just about having transactional relationships, it's about having really deeper and meaningful relationships with customers and investors and regulators and their local government officials and congressmen and so forth, so that when um, activists do target them, maybe there's some way of balancing the conversation, putting context around it by having um, allies who can also be surrogates for you in defending you or, or taking your position or at least uh, educating the public who cares about this that the activists are getting some things wrong. Beautiful. I, I think that's really helpful. And what I take away is the importance of relationships at all levels with everyone in the company. And I, I'm thinking of something that happened with us recently, and it, it wasn't a big crisis, but um, from a billing perspective, the, the person working uh, for our company to take care of things uh, was not, um, and I didn't catch it quickly enough. And it was through having good relationships with our clients that we were able to to correct it quickly rather than um, losing clients because we didn't, because we're not good at part of service delivery. It, that that bit of really build moving beyond transactional interactions to re, trusted relationships matters a lot, at least in our business. Exactly, exactly. And you know, on the subject of of um, activists, I mean, there are different categories of activists. There are those who are shareholder activists or political activists or social activists, economic types of activists. Uh, I, you know, maybe small businesses will struggle more with this and maybe they're, they are less vulnerable and less susceptible to being uh, disrupted by activists, but big companies today have to expect it. Uh, mm -hmm. It's not a matter of uh, if, it's a matter of when. Uh, mm -hmm. Every day, you know, you can pick up the Wall Street Journal or New York Times, and someone is being disrupted and targeted by activists. And um, sometimes the activists um, have truth on their side or have a very good reason for targeting specific companies or industries. So uh, companies definitely, and leaders, have to be ready for them. Um, they have to decide, you know, if this should happen, as it happened to Company A and Company X, uh, are we ready for it? Uh, what will our defense be? How do we go on the offensive if we have to? How do we mobilize our own um, our own uh, third parties and people who will probably balance out the conversation on this? And it really depends, you know, what the activists are after. If it's someone saying, well, you know, the CEO has to go and this company is poorly managed and uh, it's not keeping up with their peer, its peers in terms of shareholder performance and, and so forth, 
um, if that's not the case, then uh, you really need some outside people saying, no, 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 this is a well-balanced company. It is a well-managed company. And let's kind of go through the metrics. And, you know, they've um, maybe they're on an uptrend right at this point. So the same if you're being um, under scrutiny or under attack by some social activists. Um, there might be other social organizations out there, organizations that you support um, through charities and other means, volunteer work, who might say, you know, this is not a company that you're portraying accurately in the media. They do a lot of good. Um, they can do better, but they also do a lot of good. So your your attacks are somewhat unfair. Great. And so that leads into the question of how can a crisis actually be good for your company and what can leaders learn from them? And I think where you were going was how do we leverage those people with whom we have relationships? How do we change our culture to be more open to making mistakes and reporting and fixing them? What else can we do that that we would probably only do after a crisis? Well, I, I think the key word is, um, what did we learn? And I think the leader has to be responsible for, as a crisis is winding down, you know, what are we going to do better? What are we going to do next? Uh, I do quote Andrew Grove, the former CEO of Intel in the book, who said, bad companies are destroyed by crisis. Good companies survive them. Great companies are improved by them. So the good that can come out of it is, all right, we did something wrong, we're going to fix it, and we're going to make sure it doesn't happen again. Or we had some faulty systems and processes, and we're going to change those. Or um, this came out of some problems in our culture that we have to address. So there's, there's all kinds of ways of learning from a crisis, um, maybe... Um, your testing procedures were inadequate. Um, I remember working on a crisis 20 years ago where it was a food company and uh, they were at the center of a listeriosis outbreak where there were people getting very sick and some people dying. They weren't sure at first whether it was their products, but uh, the CDC kind of connected all the dots and said, no, it's definitely your problem. and um, the learning was that their their testing abilities probably were the industry standard at the time, but weren't looking forward as to what has to be done to make sure that we catch everything before it leaves the plant. And so they engaged some top-notch researchers at some very good universities, said, help us with this. So I, I think Good companies uh, trying to find some good after a crisis will engage a lot of different stakeholders out there and say, you know, you're smart people too. Help us address this so that it never happens to us or maybe others in our industry as well. I, I think that's such a good point. And I go back to my client with uh, ransomware that they made a lot of changes post-crisis and they will be positioned so much better going forward not only in the technology space, but to your point, also in the process space. So exactly. let's, let's shift gears because it's such a big topic right now. How has social media influenced corporate communications? 
Well, in all sorts of ways, and it's been happening for a long time. Um, and I was one of the people who, you know, worked in different generations in, in the corporate communications field uh, before social media and after social media. Um, and, of course, I had to become a student of social media and have people mentoring me as well. But I think where it's really influenced corporate communications is there is no time anymore to react to things, good or bad. Um, you know, you have to constantly be monitoring and have very sophisticated monitoring operations um, to look at all the social media traffic surrounding your company, your industry, some of the uh, issues facing your industry, because things can pop up overnight. They can pop up, you know, pop up at any time on a weekend, on a holiday, and you have to be prepared to respond to uh, ask for retractions, to deny things that are obviously not the case. Um, the good part of social media is it's it's a great way to um, provide information to people visually today. Um, mm. On any platform today, you can take something and turn it into a video that can be instructive, that can be entertaining, that can be a service to your customers. It's just unbelievable in that respect. I mean, yes, you could do that in the past with your website. You could do that in other ways. But, you know, this is the quickest way to get information out to a lot of different audiences simultaneously and have impact and get back, you know, an instant reaction to it. Uh, you, you know if you put out something that's not well received, you'll, you'll get that information in minutes. Um, and, you know, the final thing I would say about it is that it's a great way to uh, use the people who are your customers or others who are following you to generate um, user content that, you know, is germane to your brand, that um, supports what you're trying to do and really engages the people who are out there uh, buying your product, um, supporting your product, investing in your company or whatever. Perfect. So we have about four minutes left. I want to take one minute and talk about some rights and wrongs, and then we'll wrap up because I want to share with our listeners how they contact you. So rights and wrongs in using social media, because it's it seems like the Wild West right now. <laughs> yes. Yes, it is the Wild West. And it, although the rules seem to be fluid, it also seems like there are some clear rights and clear wrongs that even if others violate them, we should not. Yeah, well, I mean, some, some of the clear wrongs to me are, um, uh, and you see companies and brands violating this from time to time, but trying to make an opportunity out of someone else's uh, misfortune or someone else's problem out there. Uh, a competitor, you know, has a mishap and you poke fun of it on social media. Or, you know, fighting back with um, some of the people who are following you on social media when they disagree with you on something. There's, It's better to have uh, as I mentioned earlier, your your third-party allies, the people who are your followers as a company or as an organization, engaging some of your critics and some of your dissenters. But when you do it, it sometimes you know looks 
very ham-handed and heavy-handed. Beautiful. Thank you. I love the idea of of your allies. And, you know, on, 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 the, on the side of what's the right thing to do, you know, just making sure that social media is a key component of all multi-stakeholder communications campaigns and platforms. I mean, we've clearly seen that in the last three or four presidential elections and elections today, how prominent social media has become, Twitter, you know, Instagram, Facebook, and all the rest. And um, I think that's one thing that, you know, corporate organizations have learned from politics, that how effective um, social media can be in mobilizing people, mobilizing public opinion. It can, you know, it can go against you sometimes, but it can be a great force for change, for um um, leading public opinion in a certain direction or just getting the facts out to people. Perfect. Thank you. Jack, in the last minute, can you let people know the name of your book and where they might contact you and learn more? Yes. Well, the name of my book is Talk is Chief, not cheap, but Talk is Chief. And uh, the subtitle is Leadership, Communication, and Credibility in a high-stakes world. We talked about that today on your program. To get in touch with me, you can uh, go to my website, which is jackknifepr.com, or just contact me directly at jack at jackknifepr.com. Beautiful. Thank you so much for sharing your wisdom with our listeners. So, so as our listeners, we know that we can't allow our skills to be outdated. And Jack said in his introduction that our ability to communicate as leaders is as important as managing the bottom line, as sales, and every other key business skill. So as business disruption happens to change our our ways of being and doing our work, we must be prepared to handle them well and what and how we communicate is foundational to that. I hope as our listeners, you have heard something that you can put in practice immediately, whether it's looking at your culture or looking at how you manage social media or how you support your allies. This is Maureen Metcalf, Innovating Leadership. Please contact me either at info at innovateleader.com, connect with me on LinkedIn, or connect with me on Facebook at Innovating Leadership. I love to hear your feedback, and we welcome your recommendations going forward. Thank you for joining us, and we look forward to having you join us again soon. Thank you again for joining us this week. Please tune in for another edition of Innovating Leadership, co-creating our future with Maureen Metcalf next Tuesday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. We hope you'll join us then and have a great week.